Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now that's the modern version. The King James Version seems to have embedded itself in our culture, and and has for generations. Judge not, lest ye be judged. People who are completely unchurched at least can quote that one. They may not know another thing the Bible says, but they can do it and do it in the King James tongue. And they use it to their advantage. And I would say that every one of you have at some time in your life been rebuked by somebody who pulled that scripture on you and told you, judge not. They don't always quote the last part of that. Judge not. How dare you? Judge not. And then you wonder, where do I go from here? So I'm going to try and answer for you today what Jesus was really telling us to do or not to do. I'm going to give you some help. I'm going to help you be prepared for those people who try to corner you with this. Who try to leverage your Christianity against you. So we have to understand what judge means. And we, even in our language, know that the word judge has a lot of different flavors. And it also had multiple meanings in uh, the word that Jesus used. So we have to unravel that. What does that mean, not to judge? And I can tell you, To begin with, rest assured that do not judge does not mean do not judge. And you say, well, now you're not being honest with the Bible. It says do not judge. Well, you have to take things in context, okay? And the first place I go for my proof is we... Let's just simply go to the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And he told them concerning this man who was having an affair with his father's wife. And he told the Corinthian church to judge that. He told them, put that man out of the church. Turn him over to Satan and see if that will wake him up. It was a judgment they had to make. It was judgment in multiple ways. It was judgment in assessing the situation. It was judgment in condemning the man, taking action. And 
disciplining him, all of those things, Paul would have been totally out of order had Jesus emphatically meant, do not judge ever under any circumstances, any shade of the meaning of the term judge, and say under no circumstances ever can we ever judge. And then you go over to uh, the first epistle of John, and uh, he also is telling us to uh, judge sin rightly, to learn how to discern uh, and, and to tell the difference between what is right and wrong. That's another kind of judgment. There's two examples. We could go on. We don't have to belabor that point because it becomes obvious that there are some circumstances in which we are absolutely required as Christians to use judgment. So Jesus is saying something here about not judging that we have to be cautious of. And the key to what he's trying to tell us lies in whenever he says, because you too will be judged. So there is the caution that he is expressing, that he's saying in one sense, there's some things that you should not judge, and in a second sense, when you do judge, be very careful because people will be quick to apply your standard back to you. How many of you have noticed that before? That is the first thing we as human beings do, is whenever somebody judges us, we, our mind starts working. What can I think of as an example in their life that they are doing exactly the same thing, therefore they are hypocritical, and the computer just goes to searching? And we respond with, well, you do this. See, that's the principle of if you judge, you're going to be judged by the same standard. Because people don't like to be judged by somebody who is a hypocrite. So Jesus has given us a warning about using judgment. Now, the Greek word, as I said, is very broad. It's, it's broad like the, uh, like the English word is. In Scripture, it refers to moral discernment. It's even used with reference to lawsuits, governmental direction, and final damnation by God himself. So we take a look, closer look at the context to understand what is it Jesus is telling us not to do or he has set the parameters for if we do it. So he unquestionably has encouraged his disciples to make good moral choices. There's no question about that. We could take a vote, we'd get 100%, I'm sure. We know that Jesus is telling them, make the proper decisions. How do you do that? By judging. You have to evaluate situations. And since the apostles are later seen as speaking directly and forcefully against people who do and say things that are contrary to truth and destructive to the body of Christ, we have to conclude that that is permissible as well. But there's something in that term, judge, that we certainly should be cautious of. And if we substitute the word condemn, we're going to get a little bit closer, except in the fact that that the Corinthian church uh, condemned, they, they made a judgment and they, and they brought a sentence on the man who was uh, acting up in the church. So you have to be cautious about the word condemn as well. 
But that is going to get us a little closer to what Jesus is trying to tell us. Don't condemn people. Now, let me just throw in a little bit of flavor there. When Jesus is saying, don't judge, one of the things you want to be careful of is don't be hypercritical. You know people who are hypercritical. I've known people that, since I've been a little child, that I realized that it was just their nature to criticize everything. And that's one of the things that you should not do in when Jesus said, don't judge. In other words, when you're judging somebody and you criticize everything they do, you just, you just dismiss them. And probably every one of us have been guilty of this. So that's why these kind of sermons are great, because it really makes us check ourselves. Instead of saying, this sermon's really good for that guy behind me, it's good for us. There's been times probably when each one of us have met somebody in our life where we summarize and said, they're just no good. They are worthless. And what you've done is you have condemned them without hope. Now, it's probably become too easy for us to do that, and maybe we don't mean it, but if we don't mean it, don't say it. So we have to be very cautious we're meeting people that, that, for whatever reason, be they dishonest or be they deadbeats or, or just totally annoying people, and we just say they are just totally worthless. That is a condemnation. That dismisses the fact that God is in the redemption business and he can change and redeem anybody. So that's one of the things we cannot, must not do, is just write people off completely with those kind of uh, summaries about their character and their life. So let's be cautious about that. Make a note to yourself today. Don't do that anymore. Holy Spirit, tap me on the shoulder when I say something like that. There's always hope. And here's why we are unqualified to condemn people like that. In, in the harshest sense of condemnation. And I, I extract this from the passage we're reading. It becomes apparent from studying this that one reason is because we're not God. And we cannot act and speak for God without His direct command or permission to do so. We're not God. We don't... We don't not, we not, we don't speak for God. We don't act in God's behalf except for what He has revealed to us. If we preach His Word, then we're putting forth the Word of God. If we're getting outside of that and judging independent situations, and we're going to pull one of these King James authority things, thus saith the Lord, and make it sound like just because we put that in front of it, that whatever we're going to say is going to be as valid as the Bible, then no, that doesn't fly. Be careful about judging. Now, Scott McKnight tells us in his commentary on this passage that studies indicate that people who are deeper students of the Bible tend to read the Bible and identify with Jesus or God when they read scriptures. They put themselves next to Jesus, next to God, and they don't think they are God. They just... They just feel like God and Jesus in, in these passages are saying exactly what they would say. 
they're on his side. They're going, yes, God. Yes, Jesus. Do it. Whenever God <clears throat> strikes people dead in the Old Testament, these people identify, my, identify more with God than they do the people being struck dead. It's like they're going, good enough for them. You and me, God, we did it. People who are less dedicated to studying the Bible tend to read the Bible and identify with the characters in the text instead of Jesus or God. Now, the obvious danger that is revealed is the more we study, the more we risk thinking that we have the authority to speak for God. So we tend to absorb God's perspective, we understand God's perspective, then we take that perspective to the unlearned, and we begin to think that because I know how God thinks about most things, I can tell you what he thinks about everything. Now, not everybody who studies more does that, but that's the temptation. When you get to know more about God, you get to understand the mind of God. You get to understand the perspective of God. You get to understand what things God approves of and what things God doesn't approve of. The temptation is to be like God. That's been the temptation from the beginning, to be like God, as the serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve said, if you eat this fruit, guess what? You'll be like God. You'll see the things he sees. You'll know the things he knows. You'll be like him. And they, they thought, that is a deal. So they wanted to do that. So as you pursue God's word, that's a good thing. Avoid the temptation of thinking you can step outside of the authority of God's word and take over speaking for God when God quit speaking. Now, Moses had that problem. Here he was, a, an effective, powerful leader for God. And God told Moses on one occasion, smite the rock, and he did, and water came forth. And Moses says, whoa. That was kind of heady. Next time around, God tells Moses, speak to the rock. But Moses now understands how God works. He knows God's mind. He knows God's perspective. He knows the routine. Been here before, done that. Got it, God. And, he, of course, you know the story. He speaks to the rock. He smites the rock a second time. But for that very sin is the reason that God said, you will not get to cross into the promised land. I'll take you up and I'll let you look at it and you can drool. But you don't get to go because you don't know how to listen to me. You don't know how to stop where my authority tells you to stop. You go beyond my authority. See, that's the danger in judging. If we go beyond God's authority, we're not God. So when Jesus said, do not judge, he's precisely talking about assuming to ourselves what we believe to be God's posture or God's opinion on matters that are not clearly identified. The result is judgmentalism and legalism. My wife and I had gone to district council many years ago. And in those days, we were a lot younger, and our bodies could stand a lot more than they can stand 
today. So after district council evening services, we always love to go out and eat. Now, that I can't even fathom that in my age today. Ann and I make it our goal to eat no later than 5 o'clock. I thought I would never hear myself say that. But in those days, you know, service gets out at 9 o'clock, and, well, you know, let's go eat. Where's a great restaurant? And so we decided we wanted to go to Red Lobster. And we had another minister couple that was tagging along with us, and they said, we can't go there. Why can't we go to Red Lobster? Well, because Red Lobster at that time was associated with some uh, issue, uh, as happens all the time in our day and age. You find out that uh, this company gave money to support uh, a gay rights parade or this money over here. They, uh, the owner is uh, sympathetic to something. That, and so it was, and I can't remember what it was, but uh, Red Lobster was a part of some company that they had uh, some association. And they said, we can't eat there because they support so-and-so. Now, I wanted shrimp. I didn't care what they, I, I, I wanted shrimp. Had my mouth, I was thinking of red lobster. I couldn't concentrate on the sermon. I wanted red lobster. My wife convinced me it wasn't a battle worth fighting. I didn't get red lobster. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because there are these issues that are not strictly clearly defined in the Bible that we can become so adamant about. And it doesn't matter what you believe about something, but it does matter when you begin to believe that everybody else ought to feel the same way about it, especially when it's not clearly defined in Scripture. That's where we have to learn that judging becomes a very uh, obnoxious thing. We think nobody should be going to that place because I don't go there, because I feel like this about that. And that's one of the things that Jesus is implying when he says, don't judge. You have to be careful about judging because you're limited in your understanding. Your judgment is imperfect. Your judgment is partial. It's due to how you feel about things. It's due to your, your upbringing, your, your associations. And you cannot put that on everybody else. So we have to be careful about judging. The second reason is because uh, we have limited knowledge, we have limited understanding, and of course we have limited authority to do that. Now, a classic example of this is whenever this woman was caught in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus, and the law said, if you catch the woman in adultery, you have to stone her. So they had other things in mind other than just carrying out the law because they took time to come and find Jesus wherever he was dragging this poor woman all over creation until they find Jesus. And then they are trying to trap him. And they say, we have found this woman caught in the act of adultery. Now that whole thing just smacks of scandal to me. It sounds like it was a setup to me. And I'm wondering which one of those men was the volunteer to ensnare her. And why isn't he up front with her as well? Now, Jesus knew their hearts and knew the, this wicked thing that they had going on. And they bring this poor woman, and she's just humiliated. 
and fearful for her life. And she realizes that the death penalty uh, can be applied for being caught in the act of adultery. And, and so they said, so what? They, they say to Jesus, so what are you going to do? They were trying to challenge him. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to destroy his ministry, his credibility. And he does this wonderfully clever thing where he does this mysterious thing. We'll never know what it was. It goes down and writes in the dirt for whatever reason. We don't know what he wrote. Don't speculate about it. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, But it just appeared as though he was just taking his own sweet time about answering them, doodling in the dirt, unfazed by their challenge. And when he finally decides to speak, he tells them, okay, uh, whichever one of you has no sin, you throw the first rock. And there's something about them perceiving that Jesus knows something. You ever been in that position? You just know that somebody knows. You left your window open to your soul. And they're looking straight in. And they knew that he knew. And they couldn't pick up the stone and throw it. And Jesus says to the woman, when each one of those had dropped the stone, walked away in shame and humiliation, and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. And he says, what? Neither do I condemn you. See, he had the power to. But the law said to condemn. Now, the reason I bring this story up is because God has a perspective we don't have. Why is it this woman taken, caught in the act of adultery, is not stoned according to the law that was given by God. Why? Why did Jesus give her an out? It all looks so black and white to us, doesn't it? And you can read your Bible, you can quote Scripture, you can tell people why according to God's Word what they're doing is wrong, but there's always the possibility of something in the heart you do not know. There's always the possibility of some element that plays into why they did what they did that God sees that God can have compassion on it's like there's a difference in God's eyes perhaps between somebody who steals and somebody who lifted a loaf of bread because their little children were starving to death both of them are stealing but in one instance God has compassion on what drove these people to do what they did And the law says, doesn't matter. If you steal, you steal. But God says, I know the heart and you don't. And how many times have we, according to the clear scripture, right there in black and white, it says this, and we are ready to condemn these people because the Bible says, but we don't have the heart of God. And that's the reason... As much as I understand these, these hot topic social issues we have today, let's say like the issue of homosexuality. You know where I stand on this issue. But to go to every person who's living this lifestyle and to condemn them because the Bible says, and we've heard this so much 
in the past many years. The Bible says it's black and white. It's clear. You don't know the heart. You don't know the life. You don't know the experience of what has brought somebody to that kind of a lifestyle. You don't know the abuse they may have had as a child. You don't know the influence they may have had as a child. You don't know what's gone on that's brought them to this place. Who are you to condemn just because you say, well, I know what the Bible says. You don't know the tragedies and the hurt and the pain that is in people's lives that have brought them to a place of living maybe contrary to what God wants them to live. So instead of judging, instead of condemning, how about praying for somebody? How about trying to get a hold of their hand and lead them out, encourage them? So we all need to hear that judging can be so wrong, even when we think we've got a rock-solid case. According to Scripture, you just don't know what has gone in to making somebody do what they do. I also want to tell you about limited authority. I have limited privilege of what I can say to people. Each one of you have granted me a different degree of authority to speak to you. Some of you people here, I barely know you. You come here, you listen to my sermon, you go home. At no point have you told me, Pastor, when I walk through those doors, I want you to read me my rights. You come and go freely. At no point have you told me, next time I miss church, I want you to give me a call and give me the business. See, you haven't given me that authority. You haven't given me that right. You come and you go. Whatever's going on in your life, so far it's your business. You've not shared with me. But there's people here that you've signed membership into this church. And when you signed the membership, you said, I want to be a part of what's going on here. I want to associate and identify with this body of believers. And in doing so, I promise that I will uphold the values and the standards that we agree on in this church that we believe are biblically based. I will live according to those. I will not do anything that will ruin my testimony or ruin the reputation of my church. I promise to be faithful in my attendance. I promise to be faithful in my tithes. I promise these are promises you make. Therefore, you are granting me a little more authority in your life. So if you decide you don't want to come to church for four or five or six weeks, and I call you up and say, what's going on? You can't tell me it's none of your business, Pastor. You made it my business when you said, I want to be a part of this, and I promise to do this, and if you don't do it, I have to be interested You asked me to be looking over your shoulder. You asked me to be the one to whom you would be accountable on these things you agreed to. So you see, we have different levels of accountability. But it's limited. I can't say that to everybody. And not everybody wants to become a member because of that. And that's okay. And it's the same way with you. You don't have that kind of authority with everybody. You work with people... Uh, that do things, I'm sure, that are quite offensive to your Christian sensibilities. But what authority do you have to rebuke them for that? I ask you that. Probably zero. And so it offends me. 
Well, we're, we're going through this whole thing right now about what offends people. It's, it's shackling us. It's handcuffing us. So what? If you're a, a, a believer in Christ, you're supposed to get beyond being easily offended. We're offended every day by things, but I don't have the authority to go and try and clean this world up and make them act like I think they ought to act. They haven't given me that authority. And then the final thing is the wrongful judgment is often characterized by hypocrisy. That is, be careful when you judge because you're going to be judged by the same standard. And so, when we tell somebody else, you should not be doing those things, but you do it yourself, you have trapped yourself. And the same judgment that you judge them with shall be judged back against you, not only by them, but God's watching. You have to be so very careful. Point number two. If point number one is don't judge, and we've qualified senses in which we should not judge and should, we, we should be careful, then point number two is do judge. That's the reason I said this is complicated. Do we judge or do we not judge? Well, Jesus said don't judge, but judge. Don't judge in things you don't understand. Don't condemn. Don't assume to have the mind of God all the time. But... In a sense, do judge. And he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The plank. Now, picture the plank. I don't know what that means to you. Picture a structural beam in a building. Picture a telephone pole if you want to. Picture anything to the, go to the opposite of a speck of sawdust. I've done a lot of carpentry work in my life. I built some 80 units when I was down in Alabama serving as a pastor and a part-time carpenter. I want to tell you people, I got a lot of sawdust in my eyes. Sometimes it was only one speck, but it was just right in that spot. Well, by the time I got home, couldn't get it out. My, right, my eye is bloodshot. It get this telephone pole out of my eye. And you hunt and hunt and hunt. And you know it's there. You can't see it. But, oh, it's irritating. Now, if a speck of sawdust can be that disruptive, and then Jesus says on the other end of the spectrum, if you are trying to judge your brother because he's got some little tiny matter, and you say, yeah, but it's big, it's huge. Well, but Jesus said, but you at the same time have something that is multiple times bigger than what he's got in your own life. And that is that judgment sometimes is done in a hypocritical way. That's why we have to be careful about that. So do judge. Judge yourself first. That's a positive judgment. That's, what, that's the opposite side of this. Don't judge. Don't judge others carelessly, mindlessly, without proper information. But do judge yourself. You must do that. That's not optional. And if we attempt to judge the actions of others, 
when we're just as guilty ourselves, we seem like fools. And people will corner us. They'll be looking for that opportunity. They'll be watching us like a hawk until they finally find that weak spot in us. And they go, aha! And you hate to hear that coming. And don't think for one minute that Jesus didn't speak in hyperbole. We all do. And it's so refreshing to know that he did. Whenever we say something like, uh, oh, I went to the parade last night and, and the whole town was there. And then we've got these, these legalists who go around and say, oh, the whole town wasn't there. You know better than that. Well, it's, it's hyperbole, people. Get a life. Jesus used hyperbole when he talked about sawdust and beams. And there might have been that same legalist standing around saying, don't be ridiculous. Beams can't fit in an eye. And Jesus said, it's a hyperbole, man. Work with me here. He did use that. The famous passage, whenever he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Hyperbole. We know you can't get a camel through the... And, and don't, 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 don't even try to think about some gate in, in the wall that, that called the eye of the needle. It was not so. It just, that's, I don't know who started that. If I could find him, I'd tweak his nose. But that, that is not true. Jesus was using a needle and a camel and saying, you'll see that camel squeeze through that slit before you'll see rich men get into heaven. Hyperbole. Jesus says, so if you're going to judge, judge yourself first. Take care of your own problems first. Then you might be able to help your brother with the speck that is in his eye. But your ministry to others will be totally ineffective if your own life is a mess. That's the way it boils down. You think you want to help others, but you better clean up. You better get the junk out of your own life because you can't even help them with the smallest things if they know that you are full of garbage. Judge yourself. Be prepared because they need help. They need people who can give them a leg up. They need people who can help extract those things from their life lovingly and tenderly. But when you have harshly judged yourself and brought those things into, in, into subjection, now you're ready to help somebody. So the threefold message of these first few verses so far is don't condemn. In other words, don't play God. Number two, you're in no position to judge others when you have not judged yourself. And number three, if you get your own act together, maybe you can help some others. Now I go to point number three. Do judge. We've got two do's and one don't. So this is as much about do judge as it is about don't judge. You have to understand the whole context of this. So next time somebody tells you don't judge, you realize that two out of three times Jesus told you to judge. I have to. And, and, and judging is more than just expressing an opinion. Unfortunately, this world likes to use that to shut your mouth. When they say don't judge, what they're telling you is you have no business expressing an opinion. That may or may not be the case. You understand? There may be cases where you are obliged to express an opinion. You need to speak up for God because nobody else is. 
you need to inform people who are getting ready to do something very foolish that they're getting ready to do something very foolish. <laughs> there are times you need to express an opinion. There's other times where you probably should keep your mouth shut. It takes some wisdom to be able to know when to and when not to. But do judge concerning discernment and wisdom. Now Jesus goes to this really weird passage that doesn't seem to follow the flow of what he's talking about. Don't judge because the same judgment you use will be judged against you. Take the beam out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And don't give sacred things to dogs and pearls to pigs. And you're going, have we changed topics all of a sudden or what? And this is a difficult passage to follow the flow of it until you realize he's still talking about judging. Now it's discernment he's talking about. Wise enough to know when you're about to give something sacred to dogs. Or you're about to give something precious like pearls to pigs. So this is where judgment takes on another flavor. Have some wisdom. Use some wisdom. That's what Jesus is screaming right here. And I'm going to read this, and I'm going to show you that this, in order to properly understand this, you have to understand what we call a chiasm or a chiasmus. And a, a chiasm is a literary uh, tool where a truth called A is stated, and another parallel truth called B is stated, and then a follow-up to B is next, and then a follow-up to A is last. A, B, B, and A. They do it in forward, and then they do it in reverse. So we've got a chiasm here. It says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. That's the A and the B. Now we go to B. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then we go to A and turn and tear you to pieces. The reason I want you to understand that is because it seems like he just said, don't give sacred things to dogs, and he's done talking about dogs. Now he's talking about pigs that will trample the, the, the pearls and turn and, and uh, tear you to pieces. Now, feral hogs can probably do that. Even a, an ornery hog at the farm can probably do that. But he's forgotten all about the dog if he's applying both of those to the pig. And what he's done, he's talked about the don't give sacred things to dogs, don't give priceless things to pigs, because pigs will trample them under feet, their feet, and dogs will turn and, and, and tear you to pieces. Now they're all included in the whole thing. First of all, he's got two animals going on here. Both of them are disgusting in the Jewish culture. Dogs were wild scavengers. They didn't have pet poodle puppies. And little t dogs you can tuck in your purse and take with you. These were mongrels. These were just nasty creatures. Despised by the Jews. Pigs were obviously not on the menu. Despised by Jews. So Jesus chooses these two shocking creatures and tells them, you're going to have to use good 
judgment. You're going to have to be wise because you cannot take what is sacred and give it to dogs. Now, when he says dogs, they identify disgusting creatures. And then he reinforces that with a parallel saying, and don't take precious things, pearls, and give them to pigs. The net result is pigs, and he just uses as an example, pigs could just trample them down in the mire. They don't appreciate the pearl necklace. No pig is going to go in the pig pen and say, oh, look, I have found a pearl necklace. Let me put this on. They don't care. And you've wasted a perfectly good pearl necklace on an animal that's just going to trample it down and lay on it, and they don't care. See, the picture is very, very graphic that Jesus uses. And the sacred thing, the, the, the most precious, sacred, holy thing. And the word sacred uh, has, has these connotations of reaching back into the Old Testament and talking about because the Jews understood the nature of things that were sacred. The food that was, that was dedicated to God, the sacrifice, the altar, these were sacred things. When Jesus used that word sacred, he once again hooked them. He drew them in. They're talking about sacred. Now they wanted to hear. What about the sacred? Take the sacred. He said, don't take what is sacred, like sacred food that has been given to you, like the, like the meat that was spared for the priest that was sacred, something that is reserved, blessed by God, and go out and give it to your dog. Now they've got to try and understand what really is he trying to tell us, because he's not talking about pearls. And he's not talking about food. He's not really talking about dogs. He's not really talking about pigs. Those are metaphors for something else. But he's telling them, first of all, in the context. The Jews often referred to the Gentiles as pigs and dogs. So one thing that Jesus is telling in the context of this whole thing, he's telling his disciples is I am not yet sending you to the Gentiles. It's not time for them. They won't appreciate it. What message did Christ's disciples have when they followed him? Think about it. They did not have the message of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. That was not a concept, that it, a thing that happened. So what message did they have to take to the Gentiles? The message they had was the Messiah had come. Why do the Gentiles care? The kingdom of God has arrived. Why do the Gentiles care? He's come to set at liberty those that are bruised and set the captive free and open the eyes of the blind. Those are things that meant something to the Jews. It was in the context of Judaism. It was in their culture. And when Jesus came and said to proclaim the gospel of this kingdom to all of these, these oppressed people, the Jews were listening. The Gentiles didn't care. They weren't longing for a Messiah. They weren't longing for a deliverance. They had no message. So Jesus said, you've got a very precious thing. You've got a priceless message. Don't take it to the Gentiles. They'd have no capacity to appreciate these precious things that I have given to you. Now, there would come a time when they would. When Jesus had died, when he had risen from the dead... When his salvation sealed, when his, when his resurrection sealed the salvation of everybody, then the Gentiles began to get interested in this man who was risen from the dead. 
knew his power was put into his apostles. And they went about doing the things that Jesus did. And greater things than these shall you do. Now they're getting interested. Wow, who was this person? How did we miss him? Why haven't you told us about him before? So the context is, don't give these precious things to those who cannot appreciate it at this point. But there also has to be an application to us. There will be a time when it may be right to take the gospel to the world around us in certain situations, and there may be a time when it's not appropriate to do that. Of course, the Great Commission is to take this to people people who don't know it. But you have to use some wisdom so you don't give sacred things to dogs and precious things to careless pigs. It may not be the best idea, as enthused as you are about the good news, it may not be the best idea to take your Bible and go into the local bar at midnight tonight and stand up on a table and take your Bible and start waving it and saying, if you're sinning, you're dying and going to hell. Jesus wants to save you. I don't think your audience is going to appreciate what you've come to share with them. Use some wisdom. And as silly as that sounds, we have made some very awkward efforts sometimes in trying to preach the gospel to people who need to hear it. It probably is not the wisest thing when they've got some gay parade going on for you to go there with a big placard and a Bible in your hand and stand on the side and shout scripture verses at these people who are going by. I've not seen it work yet. Where they're going to stop the parade and run over and kneel down before you and say, who is this Jesus that we must? You know... There is such a thing as taking that which is sacred and in foolishness, taking it at the wrong time, at the wrong place. And this has been a mar on the face of Christianity because we don't use wisdom and wait for the Holy Spirit to give us the right opportunity to be able to speak. We can be so clumsy. The word is a sword. Some of us don't need a sword yet. We'll cut ourselves. We'll lop off somebody's ear for sure. We have to learn how to be responsible with this. I've, as, a, as a pastor, it's, it's very frustrating. If, that's probably not the word I'm using for it, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> it's challenging. It's frustrating when I have sometimes people come to me that have such ambition. They want to go do something. And it's just, it, you, you feel like you're, you're there on that scene where Christ is on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. And all Peter, Peter can think of is, you know, this would be a great time to build something. And Jesus is going, not now. Not now. And you, so I have these people that sometimes they come to my office and they're so ambitious and so ready to go and so gung-ho. They just want to do something. And what they're about to do is foolish. And I have to say, this is... Find a way. You have to find a way to say this is not really a great idea at this time. You want to be a pastor? Figure out how to do that and make them leave the office still loving you. It's a real trick. I had a lady came to me uh, in my church many years ago, and she was not the kind of lady by any stretch of the imagination that I wanted to be a point 
person for our church. Use your imagination. She came in and she says, God really laid it on my heart. I want to get a bunch of tracts, Christian tracts, and put the church's name on there. It was Word of Life at that time. And I want to go out and on the streets and just start handing these things out. And my heart just about froze. And I don't want this person representing my church out on the streets confronting people. I don't want this to happen. Her life was not in order. She was not living an exemplary Christian life. She was using no wisdom. And I've got to find this way to somehow discourage her from going out and making a fool of herself and bringing uh, disrepute on the church and in the kingdom. And so it's just one example of how many times I have to, to uh, rein people in who, who don't use wisdom. You've got pearls and you've got sacred things. And some people are just not going to appreciate it. Understand that, first of all. Not everybody's going to be excited about it like you are. And you can't force them to be. And you can do more damage in trying to force this in a time when it's not right than you can waiting on God and waiting on the Holy Spirit. So in the meantime, you had better build relationships and bridges with people so they'll get to the point where they'll want to hear what you've got to say. If you believe doing street evangelism is good and you want to go out on the street and you want to preach on everybody here needs to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, you're, you're getting the cart ahead of the horse. They don't care about that. I had a friend of mine when I was just starting in uh, evangelism as a minister that he was telling about their little group of people from the church love to go out to the Pizza Hut after church. An old sister, and he called her name. Every church has had one of these. She wanted to go, so here they are. They've got their little church group. And they asked her to pray over the meal. Well, what does she do? In the middle of Pizza Hut, she stands up and kicks her chair back, throws her hands in the air, starts speaking in tongues in the middle of Pizza Hut. I said to my friend, what would you do? He said, I took my plate and moved to another table. There's a time and a place for everything. That probably wasn't the place or the time. Let me summarize. Use good judgment. Don't judge others so as to condemn them. You're not God. Don't judge others when you've got bigger sins in your own life. Get your own life in order so you can help others. Use good and wise judgment for moral discernment. It's absolutely important you do that. In this day and age, whenever our society is trying to paint everything gray and they detest black and white, it's all the more important you understand right from wrong and good from evil. And use good and wise judgment when, how, and where you're going to share the gospel with others. Don't judge. But when you do, judge right. Bow your heads.